Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Media and Communications, part of the New Books Network of podcasts featuring discussions with scholars on all forms of media content and technology. I'm your host, John Baltz, a marketing and advertising professional. Our website is newbooksandcommunications.com, where you can find a short summary of the book discussed on today's show, as well as our archives where you can listen to past conversations. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. If you like us, please tell a friend or leave a review. Your feedback helps us have better conversations with authors. Today's show is a bit different from many past conversations. First, we have two guests, Emily Schmidt from the Administration for Children and Families in the Department of Health and Human Services, and LaShawn Richberg-Hayes of the Education and Social Policy Research nonprofit, MDRC. Second, we won't talk about a book. Uh, we'll talk about a six-year-long federally funded research project called Behavioral Interventions to Advance Self-Sufficiency, also known as BIAS, which was the first major opportunity to apply a behavioral science lens to programs that serve poor and vulnerable families in the United States. Behavioral science approaches to public policy, education, marketing, communication, even corporate management and human resources are growing in popularity. Governments around the world, from here in the U.S. all the way to Singapore, have started internal teams that media organizations have dubbed nudge units, seeking to improve government programs and services through behavioral science principles. Regular podcast listeners may recall a conversation with Ben Castleman last month about his behaviorally informed text messaging campaign to help students enroll in college. Like Ben's work, communication materials also played a major role in bias. Working through ACF programs, the bias team designed and tested 15 behaviorally informed interventions in seven states involving over 100,000 people. Along the way, they've been rolling out a series of findings from each of its test sites, and they are available very easily online if you put bias ACF HHS into any search engine. The team is wrapping up a final report due out later this year. Disclosure for listeners, I worked on the BIAS project way back in 2010-2011. Emily and LaShawn talk about what they've learned, when behavioral sciences work, where they have their limits, and what's next for the field as it moves beyond nudging. The conversation lasts about an hour. I hope you enjoy it. I'm joined by two guests today, LaShawn Richburg-Hayes and Emily Schmidt. LaShawn is a director uh, at the Education and Social Policy Research Organization, MDRC, where she leads its work in higher education, specifically uh, finding ways to help low-income students in community colleges, less selective for universities, succeed academically, graduate, among other things. Emily is a senior social science research analyst at the Administration of Children and Families in the Department of Health and Human Services, where she manages a portfolio of research related to human services uh, and the well-being of low-income families. She's also leading the administration's research arm on the application of behavioral economics uh, to human services. LaShawn is the director of one of those uh, initiatives on behalf of MBRC known as the BIAS Project, the Behavioral Interventions to Advance Self-Sufficiency. 
hence the acronym BIAS, uh, a six-year project that's scheduled to wrap up later this year. The team is already sharing out some of its learnings uh, and what they've been able to achieve. Emily is the federal lead on that project, uh, and they're both kind enough to join me today. Emily and LaShawn, welcome to the New Books and Media Communications podcast. Thank you. Uh, now, before we get a little bit into where media and communications fits into uh, behavioral economics and federally funded uh, research programs about human social services. Um, maybe I'll start with you, LaShawn. Can you just give listeners a quick background on where, what, what's bias and where it's coming from? What, what were its goals? Um, actually, I think Emily can answer that. Okay. Okay, so BIAS is a project that was launched in 2010 by my office, the Office of Planning, Research, and Evaluation at ACF. Um, and so uh, ACF, as you alluded to, is the human services arm of the Department of Health and Human Services. So we have responsibility for an array of programs designed to serve low-income and otherwise vulnerable children and families. And OPRE is our research arm, so officially we're charged with studying ways to improve the effectiveness and efficiency of ACF programs. We study ACF programs, low-income populations, and innovations in human services. So bias is in that innovations in human services bucket. And back in 2010, um, behavioral science, behavioral insights was kind of coming into the mainstream consciousness through the publications of books like Nudge. And we were intrigued and we had the ability to explore this idea that we were intrigued about. So we had seen things like the dramatic increase in 401k participation or organ donor rates by changing the default. And of course, when you look at those graphs, you're like, oh yes, I also want to experience this in my organization. So we um, had the ability to do some exploratory research and then ultimately design and test interventions in human services programs. Was it some of the attractiveness of those examples in other arenas that you found most attractive for bringing it into this space? Absolutely. So just this idea that you can make a small change to a program that would be relatively low cost in the public sector, that's really attractive because often programs are working with limited budgets. An individual program administrator might have limited ability to make changes absent legislative change or change from a very high up authority. So the idea that you can make a small nudge to your program and have an outsized impact is very appealing. And this was the first of these programs or first of this kind of an initiative on the federal government side. Yes. Yes. So, um, well, first, uh, first project that we were aware of that was systematically applying these insights to human services programs, low income populations, but also um, this project was launched in advance of the social and behavioral sciences team or many of the other applied behavioral science projects in the federal government. That's right. For context, there are now other teams that work in behavioral science application nudge units that are now popping up around the the globe but this was back in 2010 so this predates all of that um now so if you're launching something for the first time or maybe you have a few small examples to pull from um for for the two of you you don't necessarily have an exact blueprint right for behavioral science research uh in this set of programs or inside the U.S. government, but you do have, you, presumably you've worked with people or you've done work on other projects where it's, where it's something like the first. Um, what were you able to bring in thinking about, you know, sort of trying to do something for the first time um, 
to, from the perspective of your research agenda or the kinds of projects you would go after or the way you would structure uh, your goals and objectives? Um, so I can um, give you some examples of, of how we went about that at MDRC. So MDRC, as you mentioned, is a nonprofit social policy research organization. We actually work across uh, broader domains than education. Uh, we have our history actually started with uh, evaluations of job training programs, and we've done a lot of research uh, helping populations on um, TANF, or typically known as welfare, uh, in the areas of child support, et cetera, juvenile justice. So we had a lot of experience with um, facing participants who did not necessarily engage in programs, though they wanted to, and those programs are often geared to help them. Uh, so we were interested in bias and behavioral science because even though we might have been engaged in an evaluation, it's oftentimes very important to make sure that participants are engaging in the intervention or program that's being developed to the fullest so that they're experiencing the full intensity, they're getting the highest dosage of the intervention, they're fully engaged. And engagement and participation are huge challenges in evaluation. So we were interested in that standpoint. But given that we had so much experience in working with uh, low-income populations and working with programs and human services, we understood what the barriers were uh, for many of those agencies, as well as the administrators and staff working in those agencies. Um, in early partnership with Ideas 42, we were able to come up with a systematic approach for developing uh, behavioral interventions, and that was helpful because that systematic approach, along with the knowledge of the structural barriers uh, that are often prevalent in human service agencies, helped us uh, be more likely to implement programs that were able to work and to adapt to those particular contexts. We also spent a lot of time at the beginning of the project reaching out to ACF stakeholders, which I think was an important part of the project. So talking to ACF officials, poverty researchers, state and local human services programs to explain the ideas of behavioral science, talk about challenges they were facing in their programs and get a sense of whether they thought those challenges were amenable to a behavioral intervention. And I think that really helped prime the field for going out and doing these experiments. It generated a lot of enthusiasm about the subject matter. So for someone we're on into is social science inclined, I think that the term event intervention makes makes sense for, for people who may less be less inclined on that. Let's get into some what bias is and, and what the what intervention looks like, a behavioral intervention looks like. So um, here's where media and communications comes in, I, I think a bit here. So in a lot of cases, when you got down to doing changing a program, making a, a creating a nudge or changing a part of a program, um, you ended up working with communication materials, media channels, sort of traditional communication materials or media channels, direct mail, letters, text, phone calls. Uh, how did you end up settling here? So each, we wanted to each project, um, Individually, So we didn't go in thinking, okay, we're going to test a series of communications here. Let's figure out which ones. So we addressed, we addressed each problem separately. Um, and 
separately and independently looking at the things that prevented people from moving forward in the way that they wanted to and the outcomes from being attained in the way that administrators wanted to, it was it was often clear that there were difficulties um, from the client perspective in, in navigating the process. And some of those difficulties stemmed with there being a lack of clarity about what to do hmm. or there being hassle factors in doing that thing. So, for example, in Texas, we worked with um, non-custodial uh, incarcerated parents to try to help them increase their applications for modification orders for their child support. Uh, what an application for a modification does is it puts the the non-custodial parents' child support order up for a reconsideration. Uh, once you're incarcerated, obviously you're not working and therefore unable to pay that child support. Uh, but if you don't have a modification of that order, what will happen is you'll accrue arrears as you're serving your sentence. And once you're released, you'll have a, a large debt to repay. So um, there is a, a process in place. It's often not clear. And depending on how you're processed, you may get different information at different points. So we worked with the Office of the Attorney General to to streamline that process, to make the application process much clearer. We sent a postcard to uh, eligible non-custodial parents uh, to prime them to say, hey, you have this option. Other uh, similar parents to you have done it in the past. It's a packet's going to come soon in the mail. Look out for it. We streamlined the package so that it had information already pre-populated that the state knew. So, for example, no need for the parent to figure out what the case numbers were of their children, information they obviously wouldn't have. Uh, where they are currently, but but that could cause a bottleneck. So we, we did things like that to try to streamline the process. And inevitably, those things turned out to be uh, communications. The other thing I would say is that all the programs that participated in bias participated voluntarily. They didn't get any additional program funding from us. So mm -hmm. these interventions were all things that they were doing with their own time, with their own money. And so... Um, often changing the communications was something that was kind of a low-hanging fruit that they could go after as a first try. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that we went into the project with a focus on applying behavioral nudges. So by definition, these are low-cost interventions that don't entail necessarily wholesale changes of processes that would require a lot of resources. So that also... Uh, limited our focus. And then very early in the, pro in the project, we tried to make distinctions between what we felt were behavioral things that could be addressed versus things that were uh, what we were calling at the time more structural or things that traditional approaches such as hiring more staff or, mm -hmm. or linking processes would be able to resolve. Those things take much more time and, and many more resources. A couple things on, on the nudge part. Um, so one, you end, as you say, you ended up focusing on a lot of communication materials, even though you started with what's a basic problem that we're trying to, to help address. Um, but I know, Emily, when you had 
mentioned, spoken of earlier about sort of where some of this initial interest came from. You raised an example from um, household savings where essentially the small change is how someone is enrolled in a retirement savings program where essentially you make one side is we assume you aren't enrolled and the other side makes a small change and says, no, we assume you are and therefore we enroll you. Um, so the notion of small changes doesn't just have to end up with communication materials, but I'm curious how, why it, what is, what are some of the challenges with doing small changes that aren't, that aren't communication materials or are there any, I mean, and when you guys were, were working through some of these challenges. So right to the example of the default that you raised and the Texas example that LaShawn was just talking about, you know, our, our goal was to um, get non-custodial parents to apply for a modification to their child support order. You could think about a default where if you go to, if you're incarcerated, you automatically have a suspension of your child support payment. However, in the states we were working with, that would have required legislative change. So it's a small change to the process, but it would have taken a legislative change to get there. So those were some of the program realities that we were working with that informed what we ended up testing. We actually so we had did have an experience. Oh, go ahead. In a, another state in Vermont where they were interested in changing the default. So they, this was for parents who were enrolled in their TANF welfare to work program who were earning too much money for the program to be eligible anymore because they were working, but they were going to be eligible for a post program earning supplement that would supplement their earnings in the year after they exited this welfare to work program. And we were working with Vermont on the idea of opting uh, participants into this program rather than having them sign up because it was kind of a generous program that did, wasn't, didn't have a very high response rate. In looking at this, they actually decided that they were going to go ahead and switch the default but not test it. So it was an example where they made a small program change, did have a, an effect on their policy, but we just weren't able to test it. So you don't see that showing up in the bias reports. Interesting. Lashon, were you going to add something or no, no i was totally going to talk about that example yeah. so in general i think um what's different about these projects in some respects versus some of the other work that's been done in behavioral science is that you're working with administrations that are dealing with um a lot of legislation often um much regulation and in some situations you're actually dealing with legal processes so for example mm-hmm. as emily mentioned child support um has a legal dimension to it. And so there are restrictions on what you can and cannot do in terms of changing processes easily. Interesting. I presume you were working with media technological restraints as well in some way. Or- Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, there are a number of operational lessons that came out of this work, um, and technology definitely was one. So, um, for example, in Ohio, we worked with um, the child support agency there to try to find a way to remind the non-custodial parents to make their child support payments. So there are some number of, of parents who actually don't have their child support coming out of the page. So it's not automatically deducted, but they're not given invoices. 
you know, a bill to say, okay, your child support is due. Right. So this is surprising. Uh, so we came in and we said, well, um, for a typical person, you, a reminder is helpful. So you might know your child support is due, but unless there is a, a specific due date, you might say, I'm going to pay these other things first. And then come the end of the month, there might not be resources left for the child support. So we tested um, an invoice, but you would want to use other media as well. Um, in that case, the child support agency did not have um, phone numbers uh, for many of their non-custodial parents. So we were limited in terms of the outreach we could do. So we sent uh, hard copy letters. And for some small segment of the population, we also did robocalls and we also sent text messages. But the agencies are not uh, cutting edge in terms of technology and the information that they're collecting. So they're, they're often a few years behind in terms of, of technology. And that will limit what they're able to do in, in terms of leveraging that option. Yes, yeah, so it's worth saying that in those reminder examples, we tested letters, robocalls, text messages. Every type of reminder was equally effective, and the text messages were the cheapest. Hmm. So it does seem like that would be the way to go if these programs have the technological ability to do it. So as we start to talk a little bit about what, what you were finding, let's you know, sort of come back up. So overall, again, you had 15 trials uh, in seven states. Count up just ended up number of people participating over a hundred thousand people what were some of for people for interested parties for other folks working in these spaces uh, on the research side or the implementation side what were some of the big learnings you started to pull out uh, as, as you looked through all of the results so I would say um, in terms of the findings, um, some of the big learnings we pulled out are consistent with things that you see from other evaluations. So um, one thing, if you've got a very low adherence to um, an outcome you desired from the start, um, doing something will improve on that. I, it's fairly easy to do that. Um, but if you're already performing at a fairly high level, it's, it's difficult to move that metric um, doing something really small. So in our Texas experiment, uh, working with incarcerated non-custodial parents, we were able to get a fairly large impact on the folks that we um, induced to apply for child modification uh, of their child support orders. In Washington, we did a similar program. Uh, Washington, unlike Texas, had not had any uh, mechanism to inform their incarcerated non-custodial parents of the option to modify. So Texas didn't have a systematic approach, but but there were were some inklings of things that had been starting in the past, and some uh, parents within uh, the the prisons themselves had had done it. But in Washington, it was a much less uh, saturated environment. There, we were able to improve outcomes dramatically, um, 32 per percentage point increase, but that's relative to the, the start. We also uh, learned in this project that um, deadlines matter. 
So there is a large research um, literature on the importance of deadlines. And one of our work support interventions, Paycheck Plus, uh, we induced a number of artificial deadlines, which increased the likelihood of people showing up to a meeting. Uh, but interestingly, when we tried to make it easier for people to meet the requirements by eliminating the the requirement that they come in person and allowing them to, to just call on the phone, um, that mattered only in the timing. Uh, people who were allowed to call on the phone initiated the the meeting requirements earlier, but ultimately everyone adhered to the deadline. So the deadline was met, was uh, binding. We've got a number of um, operational findings. I think you know, one explicitly we've talked about, but explicitly simplification is not simple. Um, even though <laughs> we've talked about, you know, messaging and communications and, and we often hear that, oh, there are a lot of messaging interventions. Um, why didn't you think to do something bolder? There are a number of reasons, you know, why, um, that are quite difficult. So, um, you know, for example, if you're trying to simplify a letter that's going to a potential uh, welfare client, but there are legislative regulations about what the state needs to convey, uh, once you start to get into conversations with the attorneys, your simplification has now gotten much more complex. Mm. Um, and you don't necessarily need to worry about those types of things um, in commercial marketing. Um and in commercial marketing, they're able to, to do sort of the very small font or the very fast speaking, you know, during the, the advertising, which is not possible um, hmm. in human services programs where, where the goal is really to protect both the client as well as the agency. Um, I'd say another thing we, we learned is that pilot testing is really important. And this is partially related to technology, um, but, but also more, I'd say, related to the approach of doing these things. So we didn't talk about this, but um, John, as you know, there are a lot of experiments with um, applied behavioral science concepts that, that yield zero impacts or, or no impact. So it's not the type of thing that you can go into and just assume that you're going to get a positive outcome. Um, for many reasons, you, you might not. And for that reason, you want to be very systematic. At least this was the approach that we followed. Um, in developing your intervention, but as well as testing it. So um, we had a few situations in which we started on uh, an intervention design, was, was pretty close to executing it when something happened. Emily described the Vermont example and the, the decision to just do it universally. Mm -hmm. um, but in another example, we had an intervention all geared up to go, um, and the agency had a change in technology, which they had to do uh, because their old technology was was failing. Uh, the new technology, despite talking with the the developers and assessing the 
the options and what was possible in terms of the intervention that was previously planned being translated. It seemed to be all uh, fine, but when the new uh, technology came into play, it actually was not able to uh, handle the intervention. And this was a call center type intervention where we needed to randomize messages uh, that clients would, would hear. So pilot testing is really important. Um, to, to help sort of preserve resources, but sometimes that's not possible for, for various reasons. I'd say another thing we learned is that we had this approach uh, called behavioral diagnosis and design where we spent um, a fair amount of time up front just trying to understand the program and where the the drop-offs were occurring in terms of the desired outcomes. So really mapping the process, trying to analyze data to see uh, where drop-offs were actually happening as opposed to just relying on uh, staff or administrator perspectives of where they thought the drop-offs were happening. Um, and that was a great approach with the exception that sometimes the data are not there. So administrative data are generally collected and stored to serve a purpose, generally that purpose is not to track the process. So for example, if you're applying for benefits, um, your application will, will always be tracked, but what may not be tracked is uh, how many times you needed to come into the office with uh, all of the documentation to actually prove your eligibility. Hmm. So if you have to come to that appointment two or three times, that's not that's not tracked in the administrative data. Your initial application, your eventual approval, and the amount, those types of things would be tracked. But if you're trying to improve a process in terms of efficiency, you really need to understand um, the back and forth in terms of well, what is the average amount of time devoted uh, by a client to actually apply and receive benefits? Um, so we had to find workarounds in many situations uh, to uncover that. And in some situations, we were unable to do it and needed to just rely on the administrative data and the reports that we had and the qualitative interviews to um, try to triangulate where the bottlenecks were happening. The, the transparency in this series of reports not just about what you did and where you had problems or didn't, but just all results, this was working, this didn't work, um, is, is remarkable and to be commended. Um, it's also very helpful for people who are, who might encounter this and try to use it beyond, oh, did this work or not? I mean, it is a, it is a diet to me, looking at it, it's a bit of a sort of a diary, um, an edited diary, of course, but it's, it's saying what's going on, um, at a granular, this is what we did. Uh, we had to change this, um, level, which is very helpful on the implementation side. Um, do you think now having, learned and made changes and seen where where some of these nudges work better underperforming perform programs for instance do you feel like say if nudge if it bias starts again and now you're doing continue to work you're better able to find and identify targets um, I think so. And I think what's different about doing this now, we're actually uh, working on a project, Bias Next Generation, uh, to do this very thing, to move beyond uh, nudges, which to us means uh, moving beyond sort of focusing only on the client to focusing more on the system and also um, 
potentially moving beyond nudges to focus on uh, behavioral concepts that are more intensive. Mm. This is a better time to do this for a number of reasons. One, yes, we've learned more um, about what it takes to do this um, approach, uh, how to work best with agencies, understanding their perspectives a, a little bit better in terms of the, the barriers that they face, so understanding who needs to be uh, part of the conversation when, uh, those types of things that, that lubricate just the, the relationship. Um, but the field at large has moved along with bias, right? So as Emily was mentioning, we now have the social behavioral sciences team. We've got uh, BIP now in uh, New York, we've got Ideas 42 expanding a lot of their work. So this notion of, of what it means to apply behavioral science to these types of programs is now much more widespread than it was in 2010. And that spreading and knowledge dissemination uh, opens up conversations that prior to would have only been had among the most innovative and, and risk-taking administrators, um, whereas now I think you have a much broader population that's aware of, of what this thing is and what we're talking about and what it can and, and possibly cannot do and how it could be yielded to work in complementariness to other interventions that uh, agencies are implementing. So all of those factors, I think, will help us be able to do, um, to work with a lot of different agencies as well as tackle problems with many different approaches. So I'm not ruling out messaging. Mm -hmm. um, in many cases, uh, complex forms, uh, forms written at reading levels at, you know, the highest level of high school, um, those types of things could be changed and often are barriers if, if you're not conveying exactly what needs to be done and, and doing it in the, the easiest, most straightforward way, um, we may still do those things. We're not at the point where we're saying uh, we will try to dis to distinguish the messaging from higher intensity interventions. We may want to do that, may not. A, a lot of it depends on the context and the sample size and the problem that we're addressing. But we're definitely thinking in those ways, uh, whereas we weren't for bias, because bias was more of, um, I like to think of as a proof point. You start the first time, can you do it? Can it be done? Can it work? And we've gotten the answers to those questions. So now we're moving beyond and, and trying to become a little more ambitious. And I think that's where the field is at large. Let's, let's think about this tool, but let's do it at more intensity. And what does that look like? Yeah, and just to expand on that proof point, go back to the findings. So something worth underscoring is that we did 15 tests. We had positive impacts in 11 of them. So that's a high hit rate, certainly for social science research on human services programs. I think, you know, some of them were modest, some of them were larger, but they were all, all low cost. The most expensive intervention was less than $10.50 per person. So I think by demonstrating that success and being able to go out to programs and say, this is the kind of change you can, this is the kind of effect you can see with a modest low cost change, we'll be able to keep working on those things and also open the door to more intensive behaviorally informed changes. That ten dollar one is is in the state of for state of Washington, where you had, where again, as you were mentioning earlier, you had quite positive results from a very low baseline of performance uh, in terms of loan modification applications. Um, going back now, so the field's in a different place. 
administrators, people interested on the, from the outside, they're in a bit of even a different space, a higher level of awareness you mentioned. In the kinds of conversations when you engage with those folks now, what are you talking about? Sort of what, what level of understanding and interest and support uh, and just enthusiasm do you see now from them versus 2010 when this was starting? Emily, do you want to give your perspective? Sure. So I, th I think that from the beginning, people were really excited about this. So, you know, both MDRC and OPRE, we have a strong history of random assignment experiments. It's not always the easiest thing to get a program to voluntarily participate in random assignment. And people were really excited to be in bias because I think these behavioral insights made intuitive sense to them. They seem promising. Um, but, you know, Nobody had experienced it. They didn't quite know what it was going to be like. And so we had a gathering recently where administrators who participated in bias were talking about their experience. And one woman said, you know, I participated in bias and then everything changed for me. And just talking about how they looked at their programs in new ways, every single process they looked at in new ways, that they engaged with their staff in different ways. And I think that um, having seen the bias results and now having people who have participated in this behavioral diagnosis and design process and can evangelize about it a little bit um, makes it even more likely that we'll get people hopefully beating down our doors to participate in bias next generation. Yeah, and what was really interesting about those practitioners, um, I, I don't think this is a correlation with the bias project, but but all of them had moved on from the agency that they had originally worked with. Um, but nonetheless, they had taken these ideas to their new places of employment. So that, I think, is a testament to it really being a, a game changer in terms of their perspectives. Are they... So are they... I mean, not to, maybe not to overgeneralize how they are feeling, but how, what are kinds of responses you get to an interest to be more ambitious, to move beyond a nudge with something? Uh, is it is that ambition there, and it's simply now just a matter of, of trying to work within contexts where there are legal or um, political restrictions in terms of passing a law or changing a piece of regulation? Um, or there's still sort of, is there still a persuasion argument uh, that you're making about uh, being more ambitious beyond changing a letter uh, design? Well, so we're still early, um, but I can give you, I, I think, you know, as Emily said, having the evidence will smooth some of that. In our actual bias project, we were were able to see some of this play out. Um, there were a few of the projects that we did some rapid cycle um, iteration of designs. Uh, so one site in Indiana, we went in very early trying to address one problem. Um, and the first problem, the, the agency really was sort of um, reluctant to go too innovative, too... Um, too, too different of an approach. So we, we ended up modifying materials, uh, there to make things simpler. Um, in that case, we, we provided some information about things in, um, 
a potential client's local neighborhood, which would make their decision-making easier. Uh, But one of the outcomes of that first intervention was opening the agency up to understanding exactly what this was, what was involved, and then they became uh, more open to the idea of of changing processes later for another part of of, uh, their their process of recertification. And so there we were able to do uh, much more uh, process change type interventions. And I, I would hypothesize that if we were to, to go back, that the agency is even more open now to thinking about other parts of, of how they do business to do it differently than they were initially. Um, so some of this is, is related to... Um, Understanding what's involved, where the barriers are in terms of what you you can and cannot do in terms of protecting the client and protecting the agency, understanding who has authority to make these decisions, um, whether those decisions are going to affect staff capacity, whether staff are going to buy in. There are a number of factors that you need to take into account, and I would also get I would also sort of uh, hypothesize that. As a result of of seeing this first set of findings, that agencies might be less um, hesitant to engage in this type of intervention, worrying about their their staff um, being open to it. So, you know, I'm sure you're aware of many uh, programs that try to initiate change from the top down. Um, and while the change may be on paper, what actually happens um, at the ground level may not have any sort of, <laughs> you know, resemblance to what the, the policy is. So it's really important to get folks who are on the front line, that first caseworker who's handling the application to be engaged and to, and, and to be on board as well. And that takes time. So I think many of these interventions did a number of those things. And once you've got that initial buy-in, then you've got people generally open uh, to, to doing other things. And so I would say that's another lesson that we we had gotten here, um, you know, some of the, the criticism that we had gotten around the project is that it was so focused on client-side interventions as opposed to staff-side interventions. There are a number of reasons for that, um, some of which are just purely, you know, sample size and power considerations, right? So if you're, you're dealing with 20 staff, there's a different way to think about that than dealing with a thousand clients. But the other part of that is is really being sensitive to the, the context and the environment. And once staff start to see changes in terms of outcomes for the clients, what we had in many cases were staff being open to considering and even initiating changes on how they did things. Um, so there's something to say, I think, to be said about engagement. Um, and doing things incrementally in order to to garner that. And just for clarification, their clients. When you say that, you mean the people using the programs, not sort of not so much the client as in an agency uh, business kind of that client. It's the people using the program. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The people using the program. The people on the ground coming in every day saying, "I need help." Exactly. Yep. Um, now. Retrospectively, you developed a, a framework that you've called Simpler, 
that's all caps, simpler. Um, it, it stands for a number of uh, behavioral concepts that you ended up using across uh, the project sites. I won't actually name them all here. Uh, folks could download and go to the sites and look them, look them up. But my question is, is this framework particularly... Is it particular for these kind of nudge interventions or these kind of communication media interventions? Or is this a framework that you think has legs to more ambitious kinds of behavioral science interventions? Um, so just to start to uh, talk a little bit about the genesis of Simpler. So just to underscore what LaShawn said earlier, so we were a problem-centered project. We didn't go in to test specific interventions. We didn't go anywhere and say we're going to test reminders or we're going to test ease. We went in and say this is a problem. Let's diagnose it. Let's design an intervention for that diagnosis. Um, but what we heard a lot, certainly um, on the program side, was you know, that's great that you're doing all these tests, but what can we tell a program? I want to give a program a piece of paper if they can't be in bias, if they can't work with an evaluator, if they can't work with a technical assistance team, what can we just tell them to do? And so simpler was an attempt to, while kind of saying you should still diagnose, you should still design, you should still test, we can look back and say, okay, these were the common interventions that we used. So we didn't set out to use these seven interventions, but looking back, these were the ones that were commonly applied, and this is an attempt to put them into an easy-to-understand device that a program could pick up and have something to, as a starting point. Mm -hmm. So it's for as a tool for people you were interacting with, the administrators you were interacting with, saying, what can I do? Exactly. Interesting. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Um, I want to go back now to some of the. Lashana, you mentioned sort of where the nudge, where the nudges run up against their uh, their limits. Um, where do you think that point is, or how does that point change depending on what context you're in? Yeah, so that I could give you a couple of examples. I'm not sure I have um, a single sort of explanation that would uh, cover all possibilities, but a few examples. Um, in Ohio, when we were working with uh, the agency trying to increase the payment of child support orders, we realized that you know, there's a bound on that, right? So if Non-custodial parents don't have the resources to pay their child support. You could think of reminders, robocalls, um, even more intensive interventions. But the core of the problem is lack of work or employment or skills deficit. And that's when you start to reach sort of the boundary of what a nudge could do. There may be situations for which you could help that um, non-custodial parent become employed and increase their skill set and their experience, et cetera, and you could use nudges in conjunction with that. But a nudge in isolation is not necessarily going to overcome that, that resource situation. So that's, that's one example. Another example is uh, very early on we worked in Illinois um, around um, a job search program. The idea was to to see if there were behavioral ways to encourage uh, TANF clients to engage in the job search process. What we quickly learned is um, how a, a county 
delves out their resources or, or implements their program might um, affect the opportunity of a nudge. So in this particular situation, there were a large number of contractors that were actually doing the job search, and the caseloads handled by any individual contractor was fairly small. Uh, but the other complication here is that the job search process was largely driven by um, very few staff within the contracting agencies, and they all had their their sort of own approach. So while you could change materials and you could try to align processes to a certain extent, you're really talking about working with a lot of different agencies and a lot of different people. But when when it comes down to things that are really about interpersonal interaction, um, sort of how someone addresses another person or um, implicit bias or, or something that would take uh, much more intensity to try to address, that's beyond uh, what you can do with a, a nudge. And while you could change paperwork, if the context and that environment and that interaction is sort of uh, poisoned, if you will, the the likelihood of your materials making a, a beneficial change might be limited. As you think about future projects, um, is this kind of sensitivity to resource constraints, other kinds of structural barriers, more power, just tougher barriers, bigger hurdles to overcome. Does that now play into your, how you think about one, just where opportunities really are for this kind of work? Uh, and two, you know, what you can do on the ambition side to address them. So in our next stage work, we do have, um, ACF does have some resources to help agencies. Uh, as Emily mentioned in the first stage of bias, we did not. So that will go a long way. I think agencies also, uh, given the prior evidence, may be able to, to find some resources to support this now that it's not bleeding edge. There's, mm-hmm. you know, some evidence out there it may not seem as risky to invest in um, so that may help but for things that re- would require um, multifaceted interventions say more traditional approaches in addition to behavioral nudges we're not necessarily considering that for bias next generation but there are a number of projects that um, other federal agencies are pursuing that seem to have that exact approach um, so for example um, there is a, a project called uh, Building Bridges and Bonds that's uh, geared to help increase uh, non-custodial parents' fathers, primarily employment opportunities and engagement with their children. They're incorporating a number of behavioral informed interventions, but the core of the project is about an employment module um, and a child... Uh, care rearing module to help parents understand how to engage with their children and particularly how to engage with the custodial parent and their children. Uh, So these are things that we might in the past, we labeled structural, so there are there are more traditional approaches to resolving deep-seated problems, but they're now being uh, 
combined with behavioral interventions to try to increase engagement in the programs, to try to uh, foster an identity of being a parent as opposed to um, a non-custodial child support payer. You know, changing particular notions to help increase the overall uh, likelihood that uh, parents receive the, the training, the intervention, and they actually benefit from it. Maybe another way to ask this kind of question is, I mean, let's just assume, again, going back six years ago, you're sort of in a startup mode. Um, and when you're a startup, you're just you're taking everything or your new business. You're just you're taking all kinds of work because you're, you're trying to just sort of see what works and try things. And you're learning as much as as anything else as the field has matured, as the field has progressed, as there are other folks, players in the space. Um, how does that help? Or are, are you at a place where you're now able to be more selective about projects to say, look, we could probably do something behaviorally here, but uh, the kind of behavioral piece that is on the table here uh, just may not the, – the match is off between the idea on the, the, the intervention or the application of behavioral science and what works or what's available in this particular concept context um, ultimately because what we're trying to do and what you're trying to do is uh, build success of just the general idea that these these principles <laughs> can have an impact so it's sort of a um, are we beyond startup stitch well, I, well so I think that's it's interesting yeah go ahead emily I think it's a balance because we, so we do have this bias next generation project. We are going to launch additional tests, um, and it has multiple goals, some of which are competing. So one of them is to go into new program areas. So we want to, for example, work with child welfare programs. There were no child welfare programs on bias. So will we be able to push farther with them or will we need to start again with the nudges? On the other hand, we want to work with additional TANF programs and definitely we'll want to, we'll say there, you know, we've done communications here. So what can we push to that's next? But the other thing I wanted to just add is that um, even though we were in startup mode, we worked with a number of agencies that did not actually move on to participate in um, either the design or the evaluation. Um, and those decisions often were made around fit. On, uh, so, on Yeah, go ahead. On fit of the appropriateness of the the problem or the ability to implement um, a program, given the uh, restrictions or ability of, of administrators to make decisions around things, mm -hmm. um, or the appropriateness of of what we could do, uh, given what the site was interested in and the resources involved. So, for example, very early on, we engaged in an agency who wanted to change some behavioral messaging on their website. Um, and so this could be low cost, but in actuality, given some of the, the resource constraints, it would have it would have taken a lot of resources on part of the agency to have their uh, limited IT time uh, be devoted to altering the website in this very um, interactive way. So it was a matter of fit for, for that project um, and moving forward. We might be able to do that now. The agency might be uh, more willing to garner resources to support it than they were then. Um, you know, again, 
for the reasons we talked about earlier, that it was an untested idea. Uh, who knew? But I, I would say we were not in the place of just taking every and anything then. Hmm. Um, so I, I would say it's probably the same now. Okay. Um, final question here. What have you learned about behavioral science, the application of it, or the application of it in the federal government context uh, that you didn't know when you got started back in 2010? Or did you know everything? You foresaw it all. <laughs> you know, 2020 hindsight. No. I mean, I'll say a few things. I mean, we learned it was possible, right? All these agencies participated. They did it without extra funding. They did it voluntarily. They overcame some of the institutional constraints they might have faced. Um, like I said before, we had a high success rate. We didn't know that going in. There was actually, you know, I have said at the beginning, we engaged in this project because we thought there was promise, but there was, you know, also a lot of skepticism because most of what we were familiar with were these kind of very stylized, famous experiments that were maybe the Michael Jordans of behavioral economics. And we didn't know, okay, when we get to a TANF office and it's very kind of complex, chaotic place and these people are have very busy chaotic lives, can we make a difference with a nudge? We didn't know that. So we found out, yes, we can make a difference a lot of the time. Um, you know, I think it also, though, underscored the importance of testing. We had some results that were not intuitive. Like, it was surprising to me that when you switched the meeting from in-person to a phone call, you didn't increase the participation rate. So, um, you know, so I think we learned we can do this. Programs can do it. It can be low cost. It can be successful. Um, but you need to keep testing. LaShawn? Yep. Um, I completely agree with that. Um, I think the other thing that at least I didn't appreciate going into the project was the amount of concern about um, protection, uh, which extended not only to, as I was mentioning, the, the legal protections of both the agency and the client, but also the protection of of data um, and the protection of, of clients in general. So concerns about harm uh, from doing these nudge light interventions, I, I hadn't fully appreciated uh, prior to this. Great. Uh, terrific. My guests today have been Emily Schmidt and LaShawn Richburg-Hayes. The project is Bias, the Behavioral Interventions to Advance Self-Sufficiency. Uh, thank you both for being part of the New Books and Media Communications podcast. Thank you. Thank you. 